What happens when you hear a professing prophet make statements such as this? And so you start seeing these things in the, in the scripture, and all of a sudden it becomes glaring to you. You can't go through here and find big G, little O, little D killing anybody. It's never him that, that kills anybody. It is capital L-O-R-D. It's always a harvest of something that's coming that the prophets would hear. Thus saith God, no, no, thus saith the Lord, and it's always all capitals. Prophets were hearing the harvest that's coming. That's what Samuel heard when he told Saul. He said, thus saith the Lord, all capitals. I saw what Amalek did to Israel when he came up out of Egypt. The Hebrew says, I saw the deposit that Amalek made when he came up out of Egypt. He said, now go and kill them all. The Lord said it, not God. Do you hear anything of concern that causes you to pause and question what he just said? Is what he just said true? We're going to talk about this teaching and more today. And I hope by the end, this encourages you to listen to any message containing scripture with an open Bible and a notepad and pen in hand. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. I hope you are ready for this episode. I will be frank with you. This teaching brought great frustration and righteous indignation. And as we go, I think you will see why. It also brought me to tears. Thanking the Lord for mercy and repentance in the error that I once believed in areas and praying the same mercy to be extended to individuals like the one we're getting ready to talk about, who teach such things about God leading others astray, deceiving while being deceived themselves. We're going to listen to several clips today so that we lay a foundation for what is being said and why this is extremely unbiblical and erroneous. And I encourage you to focus on the teaching in question to follow along in your Bible, and to mark and avoid this individual according to Romans 16, 17. The fact of what he is teaching is a serious matter, and it is not testifying of Christ. And there are other concerns I have about this particular individual when listening to his teachings about numerology, about vibrations and sounds locked up in objects, and him talking about Solomon talking to ants, and David going into the heavens and being able to to speak things into the earth because he was in the heavenly realm. There's a lot of stuff that this individual teaches on that are problematic. The individual we will hear from today is a man named Robin Bullock. You may or may not be familiar with him. He's a self-professing prophet featured on the Elijah list. He prophesied about the second term for Trump, along with other political issues he continues to talk about. He's also been on record teaching about, as I said, numerology, the vibrations, the power of sound, and the fourth dimension in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I bring up the political issues because, as we will hear today, he incorporates his belief and teaching about the name of the Lord with the praying in the courts of heaven, prophets, and making a distinction between God and capital L-O-R-D, all four letters capitalized. He makes a distinction in that and going so far to say that when the Lord speaks, that is not God. And yes, you just heard me correctly. He makes this statement several times 
that when the Lord speaks, that is not God speaking. His explanation is very muddy. I, I found myself being very confused trying to follow along. So let's begin with some clips from his teaching on the Elijah streams concerning the book of Job. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole teaching. It was about 22 minutes long, I believe. But I'm going to touch on some main points in there and kind of pause in between. And what you're going to hear Robin say several times today is uh, when the Lord is speaking, that is not God. And I'm saying that over and over again so you understand what he is getting ready to say and you're prepared for it. In this teaching that he does on the book of Job, he talks about angels and how they are reapers and that they get our harvest and bring it back. And he refers to Matthew 13 uh, when he says this. He ties this to Job 1. And he includes Satan in this on the day when the, the sons of God come before uh, the Lord and Satan comes to, and he talks about this, uh, the aspect of Satan being involved in this because Satan's a fallen, even though he's a fallen angel, he still is able to reap. He stresses how Satan and the Lord are having a conversation about God and Job. Let's see what he says. The Lord said, Job's a perfect and upright man, one that fears God. Wait a minute, Steve. The Lord and Satan is having a conversation about Job and God. Now, if it's just all the same name, why would it be written this way? Oh, I see so, what you're saying. The Lord and Satan is talking about Job and God. Wow, He's, I've never seen it like that before. They use yeah. different words. Oh, it, it does it glaring in your in your eyes, glaring. It uses it. It's because what he's trying to, Moses is trying to get across to us is there is a day. He said, when angels go before the Lord to get harvest. And he said, Satan came with them because he's an angel. He has a right to reap. What kind of harvest is Matthew 13 talking about? We'll get there in just a moment. Well, he's an angel. He comes up before the Lord. and The Lord says, you're here to get Job's harvest, aren't you? And he said, have you noticed Job? He fears God and he turns away from evil. He says, but he fears God for nothing. Satan told the Lord, watch this. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? And if you change and read the proper names, it says, then Satan answered the Jehovah or the Yahweh part of Elohim. Does Job fear Elohim for nothing? So they're talking about two different people, two different aspects of the same yes, God. Man. Yes, they're two different persons, but it, they're in the Godhead, and God is one, right? It's important to note what Matthew 13 says, because he, in passing, mentions Matthew 13, and he uses it as a premise for the angels to come to the Lord, which he continues to reiterate is not God speaking. Oh, goodness gracious. And so we're going to see what Matthew 13 has to say when it talks about the angels, beginning at verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds as Jesus and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, which when you read Matthew 13, there are many parables in there, and they're relating back to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom is the focus here and what is going to happen in the son of man sowing. And so he's beginning to explain to them the parable of the weeds. In verse 37, Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Isn't that interesting? When you get to hear that in context, it's not talking about reaping for us to have personal possessions or health or anything like that or wealth. It's talking about the end of the age. Jesus makes it clear. The angels are going to come reap the unbelievers and they're going to get them prepared for eternal judgment. And there's going to be a harvest of the souls that belong to God. Now, here's a tip that I have for you. It, It may be... Maybe perhaps that somebody listens to this that follows individuals like Robin Bullock, and this is not a personal attack on him. This is an evaluation of the teaching he's bringing. That's what it boils down to. But I have a tip for you. When someone notes a passage of scripture and what it means without going to it, you need to open your Bible and read it for yourself. When they refer to it with an open Bible, you need to open your Bible and read it for yourself. And you need to see what the context of it is. You need to look at the verses before it. You need to look at the verses after it. You need to not just listen to someone say like this, say this in passing and try to appropriate it to another area that it has nothing to do with. And what he's saying is not even related to all of this when you look at it and and what it means. So just a little friendly tip I want to pass on to you. He goes on to say this. And so what he says here, he said, you made a hedge about him. Well, hedges grow, you know. Said, you made a hedge about him. You've blessed all the work of his hands. You've increased his substance in the land. He said, Lord, put forth your hand now, touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. In other words, he sowed a seed to lose his stuff, but you can't kill him because he hasn't sowed a seed to die. Where in the world is that in scripture? I'm so sorry. This is going to be really difficult for me because when I listened to this, it was just so, it was very frustrating because the lack of irreverence for God, for one thing, and then to to not teach what actual the name of the Lord means and who it's pointing to and who is through the Old Testament, New Testament. <sighs> Forgive me. It, it was just really hard listening to this. But where is this in scripture that he's talking about? He is... He is adding to the text. He is eisegeting into the text is what we could clearly say. He is reading into the text. He makes this claim that that the Lord is saying, well, you know, Job sowed to lose this stuff, but he didn't sow to die. So you can't touch him this way. He goes on to say that he cursed his own body and he sowed for that, but Satan could not kill him because he had not sowed for that. Where is that in the passage? Where is it? Would you have come to that conclusion reading that on your own, just just literally reading that passage? Would you have come to that conclusion? You need to ask, that's one of the questions that you need to ask yourself. Just reading the passage, would I have come to the same conclusion that this person is, or would I have read into it what this person is reading into it? They're, he's reading beyond the text of what it says, and he's trying to, to, to fit this narrative of seed and harvest is what it's going to come down to. You're going to hear him say that, that the name of the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, is the government of God, and he's also going to say that it has to do with harvest. And he's going to repeat that over and over again. And the question is, where is that in Scripture that that's what that means? And you may be wondering why he's stressing stressing the, the Lord part. 
And we're going to find that out in just a little bit. Robin does say also that Job sowed fear because Steve Schultz asked him, what was it that Job sowed that brought this these troubles, these cal- this calamity. And Robin says that Job sowed fear. Even in the beginning of the teaching, he alludes to the fact he alleges that Moses, which nobody knows who wrote the book of Job. Some people do say Moses, but some scholars don't agree on that. Nobody knows that the person who wrote it is not identified at the beginning of Job. He alludes to the fact that um, Job was the one that told Moses the story about himself. He says that Job told him, watch what happens when a man gives himself over to fear. So he he presents it as Job sowed fear. That's not the first time I've heard that. I came under that teaching when I was in the movement of that Job feared, and that's what opened the door for the devil to do things to him. In spite of what Job 1.1 says, and Job 1.8-12 says, that God was the one that actually highlighted Job to, to Satan. The Lord was, the Lord God, was the one that highlighted Job to Satan. He identified him as a righteous man who turned away from evil. And he did not say to him, well, he's feared. He's been in fear, so that's why you can do something to him. He sowed fear, and that's why you can do something to him, Satan. That's not the point of Job. And that should bring us great comfort to, to peace to know that and great comfort when we realize the point of Job. Let's keep going because it's going to get worse. Satan, I'm going to tell you something else. Satan never went before God. He's never at God. He never, he was kicked out of God's presence. It says he went before the Lord. He went before the top of that ladder to get men's harvest. I wanted to pause for just a moment to make this clear, as you can look and see what many expositors agree, what Jacob's ladder represents. Jacob's ladder, which is referenced in Genesis 28, I believe, and also in the Gospel of John when Jesus talks about it regarding Nathaniel, you're going to find that this is pointing to Christ. Jacob's ladder is pointing to Christ and to salvation that can only come through Christ, who is the mediator for man to God the Father. That's a huge problem in reading into the text and prescribing something to it that it does not mean of talking about the angels go to get harvest for people and bring it back to them in the monetary scheme and da-da-da-da-da. That's not what it's talking about. The latter is Christ, and He is the way, only way to salvation by faith alone in Him to be reconciled to God the Father. He never saw the person of God again. He can't, that slimy thing can't crawl into the presence of the Almighty. It would burn him to a bacon crisp. What are you saying that he, what is Satan, if I can ask it this way, what is Satan seeing with his eyes if he's not seeing God? What is he, who is he conversing with if he could, if he could even picture Satan, Satan is an angelic being. Right. An angel. He's a fallen angel. <laughs> he he can't go before his presence. But there okay. is there is a place Jacob talked about it at the top of this ladder. Okay. Where where Yahweh renders harvest and gives it out to all. Where men. maybe like where maybe the glory in his presence is not. It's not like this oh, massive no. glory, right? No, he can't get into that place. Okay. He can't get before God like that. He continues to expound on this, but you notice that he doesn't fully answer the question of who Satan saw. It pretty much is clear as mud as to his explanation of the name of the Lord. He goes on to say there is a difference between the person of God and the government of God. And you are going to hear him say that the name of the Lord is the government of God. 
But what does he mean by the government of God? Well, let's have a listen to another teaching that he did on the Elijah streams, dealing with the revelation of the government of God. Elohim created him, his spirit. But then the Lord God made his body from the dust. Notice when he got ready to to do something with the dirt, it was the part of himself known as Yahweh. And so when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, lives, the Hebrew says, it was the Lord, Yahweh Elohim, that breathed into him. Now, why is that important? Because he breathed into his nostrils, Yahweh Elohim. It's the part of God that is his government. It's him in his government. It's the government of seed, plant, harvest. It's the government that makes everything live. And when he breathed into the man's nostrils, it said that the man's soul became alive with the knowledge of the Lord God. It became alive with it. And then he's walking with this man, not God, said the Lord God is walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, God is teaching him about his government. And he starts walking through the garden and he says this to him, Steve. He said, now you see those trees over there? He said, those trees will produce free for you as long as you give me that tree. If you give me that tree, that's your seed, all of these will produce for you. Um, what? First of all, Yahweh is the soul of God. Um, you're going to hear him say that. Yahweh is the government of God. What is he talking about? I, I really don't. I'm not following. I'm not tracking with this because I cannot find this in Scripture to support what he's saying. If you eat of that tree, then these won't produce any longer. And he said, if you disobey me, that is also a seed. And in dying, you'll die. And so he's telling him, everything you do is in this government of seed, plant, harvest. Seed, plant, harvest. It's all in this government. And so we find out that Yahweh Elohim is referring to the soul of Elohim. It's his, it's God's soul It's his very soul. That's why when he breathed into the man's nostrils, the man's soul became alive with the understanding of this government and the difference between the person of God and the government of God. Are you as confused as I am? I've never heard this teaching of Yahweh is the soul of God and the government of God and talking about how the, the Lord God breathed his soul into into Adam. And he'll make a distinction too. You'll hear teachings if you if you take time to listen to some of his teachings and to try to test them against scripture, you'll hear him talk about Genesis 1 talks about Elohim, which is God, and then it switches to Genesis 2 to the Lord God to Yahweh or he says Yahweh, but you'll hear him talk about this and he makes this distinction. But the distinction is not in the persons of the Godhead, he makes the distinction that Yahweh is the government of God. And he acknowledges even in Job 1, in the teaching on the book of Job, he says that Satan came before Yahweh, the judge, the Lord. But again, he's he's associating it with the government of God. It's very confusing. And, it, and I feel like Steve is even confused when he's listening to him on this teaching, because it just does not seem, it does not bring clarity. It brings confusion. God's not the author of confusion. This is pointing to something else that's not even there. And then it's pointing back to people, i.e. prophets, modern day prophets, and it's associating them with giving the word of the Lord. I, I would guarantee that that's where it's heading because they're trying to make that association. 
and the government of God and telling you you can go to the courts of heaven because you're part of the government of God and you give the word of the Lord. That's dangerous teaching, guys. If I'm hearing him correctly, this is just dangerous teaching. Well, see, what happens is, is we don't understand the difference between the person of God and the government of God. And if you and if you ever make the difference in the in your thinking and you look at the way, see, the King James changed the spelling so that you would know the Hebrew words changed. They did that because they didn't have the words to write it. So they changed the spelling. And in the authorized version, in all capitals, Lord is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, we say. In in big G, little O, little D is the name for Elohim. And so a big L, little O, little R, little D is Adon or Adonai, which means master. And so you start seeing these things in the in the scripture and all of a sudden it becomes glaring to you that it has never been. It was never. Uh, you can't go through here and find big G, little O, little D killing anybody. It's never him that that kills anybody. It is capital L-O-R-D. It's always a harvest of something that's coming that the prophets would hear. Thus saith God. No, no. Thus saith the Lord. Did you catch that? He just correlated it with the prophets. And he said, did God say it? No, it was the word of the Lord. God didn't say it. Wow. And it's always all capitals. Prophets were hearing the harvest that's coming. That's what Samuel heard when he told Saul. He said, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, I cannot believe what he just said. We are going to cover the actual meaning of the word Lord in just a moment, but I want you to catch what he is saying here. The prophets are the ones representing the government of God, the Lord. If that is not plain, here is a clip from a recent gathering where he preached on this same topic along with other questionable things that he said. But we're going to focus on this particular topic today. Let's listen in on this recent gathering that he did, and he does the same teaching. It is told everyone that God kills, God does but the Bible never says God kills, God makes alive. It says the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. Amen. All capitals. That word all capitals is God in his system of harvest. It's the court and the government of God. And you go through the Old Testament and you can't find big G, little O, little D, Elohim, killing people. It's always capital L-O-R-D. Because it's always harvest for seed sown. Now you have your answer when in the Old Testament it says, Go in, thus saith the Lord. Not God. Thus saith the all capital Lord. Go kill them all. Wipe them all. It's not God talking. They have sown the seed. And the harvest has been heard. Pronounce it. It is not God talking. That's what he just said. Not God talking. It's the, it's the word that's gone forth that's been pronounced, and it's a seed. He's continuing to perpetuate this even in corporate gatherings that he's attending and preaching in. This is where prophets are. They're the mouthpiece for the court. This is why the scripture says, do my prophets no I hope you recognize the danger again in this teaching, how damaging this is, how it is bordering on blasphemy to say such a thing because he is completely missing the actual, the name of the Lord means and who it's referring to. I really just don't have any words 
for this to, to fully describe it, except to say again that this is extremely concerning to hear something like this teaching. Do my, my, don't touch my prophets. They're my servants. Among other things, prophets are court attendants. They are the mouthpiece for the word of the Lord. In the book of Job, when you find that, that Satan came up before so he goes on in the same gathering to expound on Job in the same manner as in the teaching he's doing on Elijah's dreams. So let's go back to the teaching on the government of God and see what else he has to say on that matter. And so we're going to pick up where Steve Schultz has an interesting question for him that gets a bit muddy again in the answer, and it's not matching up to the meaning of Yahweh. Not God. It was the Lord that said it. In other words, okay, okay, are, you, are you saying... Are you making a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or are you saying this is the different aspect of the same yes. God? He, he, yes. he as yes. Lord, he acted differently than he acted as Elohim. Okay, it's like this. Okay. I'm Robin D. Bullock. I'm Robin D. Bullock right now, the teacher. So he um, takes a moment to basically acknowledge he's the analogy of himself. He says, I'm Robin D. Bullock, the teacher. I'm also Robin D. Bullock, the prophet. I'm Robin D. Bullock, the bus driver. When he goes on tour, he's Robin D. Bullock and different. He, he wears different hats. And he basically says this, uh, this applies for God, that this is the same thing with God, these different facets that he has. He uses that analogy to, to basically make that point. And then he continues to go on and say this. Also, Robin D. Bullock, the airplane pilot, if I'm flying an airplane. I'm Robin D. Bullock, the musician. These okay. are all different aspects of the same man. Okay. And, and this with God is his government. See, Steve, he has to have a government by which everything lives. If it's not, it's just haphazard. Everything is, would be haphazard. The government of God is seed, plant, harvest. It's always seed, plant, harvest. Every word you say is a seed. Every move you make is a seed. You get up to sit down. You sit down to get up. You close your eyes to open your eyes. Everything you ate today came through that government of God. All your clothes came through that government of God all through seed and harvest. Everything, you came through that government of God. And so if I say, was well, that the same, is that almost exactly the same thing as saying everything comes through sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, yes. sowing and reaping? Yes. Same thing, right? Yes, yes. But that name, that part of God that governs that is the name Yahweh. That's that name. And that's the name who generates all life. That's the part of himself that generates all life. So now that we have listened to some of this teaching, let's go to the Word and to some sound biblical teaching on this matter. I want to look at Strong's first before we go to the actual scripture. When you look up in Strong's, for example, you're going to find that the Hebrew word Yahweh has this listed as, as the meaning. It says, God chose it as his personal name by which he related specifically to his chosen or covenant People. We find in Genesis 4:26, for example, it says to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We can turn to Genesis chapter 6. We can see in here that God tells Noah he will destroy the wicked people with the earth. God tells him that. And the Lord was sorry. It talks about how the Lord was sorry that he had made man and earth and it grieved him to his heart. When God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, verse 13, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
and it says that God is speaking. So that really disputes his point of saying God never killed anybody or destroyed anything. Again, But again, there's this disconnect here of what's going on and something else is being put in place there for understanding of Yahweh. Exodus chapter 3 verses 15 through 17. This is the account of the burning bush when Moses is talking to God. And here is what is said. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they continue. I mean, you can find numerous passages where there's reference to the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And it is God speaking. I mean, you go to Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. You can see here that God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. (laughs) I don't think you could get any more plain than that. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Again, this is God speaking. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am am the Lord. And even in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, when we're looking in the Old Testament, we're going to look in the New Testament here shortly. We're going to um, listen to some clips from a really good Bible teaching that I caught recently, and it happened to be right at the at a, at a good time. I remembered that I had seen it, and it's going to apply today. So praise God for that. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. Now is the commandment, the, statu- the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." So again, we see that the name Yahweh was actually a personal name and the name he chose to relate to the chosen covenant people that he had chosen. Now, there are many more passages to reference, but you see here that certainly two persons are represented here. But who is Yahweh? There seems to be some confusion. Yahweh is not the government of God. Yahweh is not the soul of God or a facet of 
of God. He is a person in the Godhead. I want to play for you some clips from a recent teaching from Chris Rosebro, who does Fighting for the Faith. And he took time to recently explain why he uses the name Yahweh, and his teaching from Scripture helps us to see who is Yahweh. Now, spoiler alert, it ain't the prophets or us speaking the word of the Lord as the government of God before the courts of heaven. Who is Yahweh? Let's have a listen to some of this teaching. So when you're reading an Old Testament text and your English translation has L-O-R-D all capitalized, the Hebrew word behind it, and it's this big one, this one over here on the other side, is what's called the tetragrammaton, the four letters, the name of God, and the name of God is Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew verb ha which means to be, and Yahweh is the third person masculine singular form that we speak back to God. I'll explain that into a minute in a minute here. But so we can see every time you, you hear me reading and I see the word L-O-R-D all caps, I supply the name Yahweh because it was the Pharisees who came up with the superstition that, well, the, the Bible says in, in Exodus 20 that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Actually says the name of Yahweh your God in vain. That's what it says. And so they said, well, we'll never take God's name in vain. If we never say his name, there's many ways that you can take God's name in vain without actually using the name Yahweh. So they were the ones who came up. I could think of one maybe saying that the name Yahweh means the government of God. Let's keep going. This idea of every time the name Yahweh shows up in an Old Testament text, they replaced it with the Hebrew word Adonai. Now, they didn't replace it in the Masoretic text, but what they did is they pointed Yahweh using the, the points for uh, Adonai. And the idea then is, is that if you were attending an Orthodox Jewish synagogue and uh, you know, or a Pharisaical synagogue, those are synonymous concepts, by the way, um, whenever they were reading out an Old Testament text and God's name appeared, they wouldn't say Yahweh, they would say Adonai. Okay, I don't follow the Pharisees' ideas, traditions, or superstitions. I can read the Hebrew text. It says Yahweh. We're going to go with what God's name is, and we'll explain what it all means here in a minute. And this is, the, this is really kind of the text to explain that out. So Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephthah, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great, great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh, again, Tetragrammaton shows up, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from out of the bush, Moshe, Moshe. He said, here I am. He said, do not come near, take Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then, here we go again, Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will 
will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. So God here says, ki eh yeah, all right, eh yeah. That's from the Hebrew verb hayah which is where we get the word Yahweh from. And God says, I will be with you, all right? So there's a sense in which the name Yahweh, it really implies God's presence. He's with us. But there's a little bit more to it than that. And I'll explain as we we get a little farther into this. Now, I want to skip ahead a little bit uh, in this same teaching that Chris does. And I'm going to provide the link for all of these so that you can test what I'm saying for yourself in the clips from Robin Bullock. And you can also benefit from the teaching from Chris Rosebro because this was very helpful in understanding even more so and seeing the tying in with the Old and New Testament to see who exactly is Yahweh. And it's very clear from Scripture who Yahweh is. So let's continue to listen on to what Chris has to say in looking at a couple of the particular verses in the New Testament to see that correlation. Of who is Yahweh? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, real quick, when we're confessing that Jesus is Lord, are we just confessing that Jesus is the boss? It's more than that. So this, what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, watch. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you do your cross-references here, that is Joel chapter 2, verse 32, being quoted by the Apostle Paul. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, watch this. You know, he clearly, Paul is saying that Joel 2.32 is referring to Jesus because uh, we, everyone... You know, with your mouth, you confess that Jesus is Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, when you go to Joel, Joel 2.32, here it is in context. Uh, Joel prophesying, I will show my wonders, show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. So you'll note your your Old Testament, if you, your English translation says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but the Hebrew says Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And so we know then that from here, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's referring to Jesus. That means Jesus is Yahweh. Well, it's it's even better than that. And uh, you know, f- let me give you another text that we're all. There's several texts that he um, that he expounds on in this. I, again, I encourage you to listen to this teaching, and I'll provide the link below in this podcast episode. So, what can we learn from all of this? What can we glean from looking at Job and and understanding who Yahweh is? Because Yahweh is Jesus. 
And we can see this tied into the Old Testament and New Testament. What can we learn from Job, the book of Job? Can we learn about the government of God and about sowing seeds of fear and um, learning how to plant and reap? And can we learn about the angels who reap for us that go to get a harvest for us and bring it back at, at the top of Jacob's ladder and that God's not speaking when the Lord is speaking, that it's not God, that's not God at all, that that's the government of God, that that's the prophets. No, we don't get that from Job. We don't get any of that from Job. It appears that we don't get that understanding when we read Job. What is the point of Job? And this may not be a very popular thing to hear. When you read Job, this is what you come away with understanding. If you're truly wanting to just sit and read Job and get a grasp on what's going on. Job shows us a picture of both a personal God who is involved in the lives of his people and a divine creator who is sovereign over his creation, including Satan, including Satan. And we do not always understand human suffering. Our understanding is finite. It is limited because of being created beings. We don't fully understand the ways of God. We don't, we don't fully understand human suffering. But we can trust God in his sovereignty and in his ways. This is something for you and I both to consider. It was Job's faithfulness and reverential fear of God that highlighted him before God and brought him to be tested in his faith, found secure as he proclaimed, I know that my Redeemer lives. He proclaimed that in Job 19.25. So it was Job's faithfulness and his reverential fear of God that brought him to God's mind to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? That he's blameless. He turns from evil. He has no part in evil. And God doing this is ultimately... He's the one that highlighted Job to Satan, and then Satan asked to test him. God gave him permission to do so, but he placed limits on him. I know that that's not a popular teaching, and I know that that really, it upsets the apple cart for people, especially those of us like myself who were taught for years about, it was really Job's fear that did this. By believing something like that, it's essentially trying to eliminate the sovereignty of God. God being omniscient, all-knowing, he knew the end from the beginning. And in the words of one Bible commentator, Job was written to those who struggle with the justice of a sovereign God in a world filled with suffering. Because we want answers to suffering. We want to know why it's happening, what's caused it, how do I get out of it, how do I solve it, how do I stop it. And we want to do anything we can to not believe that, that, we're, gonna, that we're going to incur suffering in this world when we will. And this also helps us to understand two glaring issues with this teaching here. The lack of acknowledging Christ as Lord and the acceptance of the sovereignty of Satan. Because that's the trade-off, isn't it? If we don't believe that God is sovereign, if we don't like that term, sovereign, which means in control, if we don't like that term, or we try to play semantics with that term, then the opposite happens it seems. And there's an acceptance of the sovereignty of Satan, and Satan is not sovereign. There are certainly other issues of concern dealing with the underlying teaching of the word of faith here, because when you're saying you have to, you know, say things with your mouth and sow things in, and even in the meeting and that um, the recent gathering, Robin Bullock even talks about that people, that the church is able to go before the courts of heaven and that it's their decrees and declarations that are sowing for a harvest. Again, this is a, this has underpinnings, undergirdings of a, 
it has undergirdings of word of faith teaching that there's power in your words. But essentially what's happening is that when we don't like the sovereignty of God, then Satan is elevated to where we have to fight Satan all the time. We've got to fight all these demons all the time. We've got to wage war on all these demonic influences all the time. Everything is being assigned to the devil, that the devil's doing everything and we're making him sovereign. And it was interesting with this this particular wording of this because I came across on social media recently, actually a couple of days ago, and this ties in again really well. And so I came across this on Grace to You, and John MacArthur wrote this. It says, Charismatics and the Sovereignty of Satan. I, I couldn't help but agree with what was said. So what he, he talks about is that the whole reason he wrote this article, it was based on a letter that he had received from a woman that had come to visit Grace Community Church, which is the church that John MacArthur pastors. And he, that, he says that this lady had actually come from a very large, prominent, charismatic church that was in the area. And he thought it was very interesting that it was quite a bit bit of a leap to to switch churches like that. And he said the only thing they knew in their church about him was that he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all they knew. And that he didn't believe in the continuation of the gifts, so he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's pretty much all that they knew about him. They didn't know anything else than that. Um, He said that there were a number of people who were in the group that came, and one of the ladies wrote him a a well-written letter, and he shared some of it in the in the article. And so I'm going to read some of this to you. And I agree with what she said. She said to him, you know, we lived all our life in this movement. And one thing dominates that movement. And it is that Satan is sovereign. If you get sick, it was the devil. If your child gets sick, it was the devil. The devil made your child sick. And even if your child dies, Satan somehow got the victory. If your spouse, your husband, or your wife gets cancer, that's the devil that did that. If you had an accident, the devil did that. If you lost your job, the devil did that. If things didn't go the way you wanted them to go in your company or your family, and you wound up with a loss of a job or a divorce, the devil did all of that. The devil has to be bound, so you have got to learn these formulas, because you have got to bind the devil, or he is really going to control Control everything in your life. The devil dominates everything, and he is assisted by this massive force of demons who also have to be dealt with, and you have got to do everything you can to try to overcome these spiritual powers. And they are invisible, and they are fast, and they are powerful, and they are really impossible for you to deal with on any permanent basis. So it is an ongoing, incessant struggle with the devil. Who can relate? I'll raise both my hands and both my feet at those statements right there that that lady just made because that, my friend, is what's called charismatic legalism. And that's what goes on with having to deal with the devil and the sovereignty of Satan, which again, I'd never heard that term before, but it certainly fits because it's certainly Satan is made much of in some of these parts of these movements. Now, not all charismatics, but in some parts of these movements, the devil is made very much of, and it seems like God has made very little of in his sovereignty. She came, she went on to explain to him, I lived with heart palpitations, panic attacks, and anxiety, frightening dreams, waking up in the middle of the night, terrified that the devil might be doing something to my child while he's lying in his bed, just living in this constant terror of what Satan was doing, that when the wrong guy gets elected, Satan put him there, that when the society does a certain direction, it is all under the control of Satan. Satan is really the sovereign of everything, and it is really difficult to get control of him. Even God is up there wringing his hands trying to get control of this deal. I live with that fear and that terror because I took my church seriously. I came to Grace Community Church and one thing just totally shocked me. 
she went on to say that John MacArthur said this, the fact is God is in control of everything. When you get sick or when somebody gets cancer or when something goes wrong in the world or when you lose your job, that is not outside the tolerances of God. That is not outside the purposes of God. In fact, God works all things together for good. She said this was absolutely earth-shaking. This was a total change for us. And the difference we found was so powerful that it totally changed the way we think about life. The way they think about life. I could not deny the contents of what she was saying, of what she was testifying of. And thinking of the times I had personally, without realizing it, placed Satan as sovereign in the world. And there is so much emphasis on the devil and the demonic in areas of this movement. And there's even a condemning teaching presented that to believe in God's sovereignty is without faith and is without power. And to add insult to injury to us being the government of God by the mention of the word of the Lord, rather than to Christ Jesus himself, is beyond what I can put into words. I I cannot believe still that I have heard a teaching repetitively from an individual say, well, when the Lord is speaking, that's not God speaking. I'm, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind that someone would say such a thing. I'm going to share one more clip with you. And this, this last clip I will share with you brought me to tears when I was listening to it in both grief and anger. Robin Bullock had just stated that the answer to canceling a bad harvest is to plead the blood of Jesus, referring to the account of the Passover lamb in Exodus and the angel of death, which he says was reaping the seed of Pharaoh's words. And the other element, according to him, is to praise God. And for those who would rest on God's sovereignty, this was his response to that. To stop a bad harvest, we must begin to plead the blood. We have to plead the blood of Jesus to stop this bad harvest that's coming. Because if it's bad happening in your life, it's a harvest of some kind, somehow that got into this situation. We start with the blood. It's the blood that cancels a bad harvest. So he said, out of your mouth, he gave you a praise to stop the enemy in his tracks and stop a bad harvest from coming at you. So the blood and praise stops the harvest. It will stop a bad harvest, but it won't if you don't know it. Yeah. And if, and if all you ever say is, is I guess God's allowing this on me to teach me a lesson. Why would you fight back? Why would you even try if you thought God did that to you? You couldn't take medicine because the doctor has sworn an oath to try to get you well. And yet you're going to make him in danger of hell fire if you think God put that on you. If he put it on you, why are you taking medicine to get it off? (laughs) You know, I listened to that clip and again, it brought me to tears and it made me angry listening to it because I know of people that have suffered and they have faith in Christ. And to say that there are people that trust in the sovereignty of God and then to tell them, well, then you shouldn't bother getting any medical care because you're going to condemn that doctor by believing that God is sovereign and is in control of what happens in this world. I just find that wicked to say such a thing, and it's so condemning. It's condemning in such a way that it it damages people's faith. It can damage people's faith. And I would like to say this, for those that have had endured suffering, we've we've endured things in our family. There's many of us, all of us at some point have done that. And it is possible to rest in the sovereignty of God and to thank the Lord in the midst of suffering in a fallen world, that He provided a means to care for our bodies by way of medicine. 
It is possible to do both. It is possible to say, God, you are sovereign in what is going on in my life. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't have it all figured out, but I trust you. And I thank you, God, that in the midst of this fallen world, you have provided ways for us to take care of our bodies that are aging, that are decaying, that are going to die. You have provided ways to extend people's lives out. You provided ways. You provided medicine. You provided physicians with knowledge and wisdom. We need to be thankful for that. And we can still we can still do both. We can have believe in God's sovereignty while understanding we can still take care of our bodies and help them help us to live longer and healthier lives by using medicine. And medicine is found in the Bible, by the way. Um, it does not negate God's sovereignty to seek medical care. God can most certainly use trials in our lives to glorify him in conforming us into his image. And I think that we miss that. That's an opportunity for us to be sanctified and for us to be ever conformed to his image. Again, I know that I've mentioned this scripture before, but in Romans 8, it talks about all things work together for the good of those who love him. And maybe we need to hear this again. Maybe I need to hear it again. Maybe you need to hear it again. All things do not just mean what we think is good. All things work together for the good of those who love him. There are things we are going to go through in suffering that don't seem fair, and they are hard. But God knows the end from the beginning. And he knows what's best for us. And he knows what is going to conform us to his image when we are in Christ. That's not a popular message. We see it in scripture. It's modeled. We're not promised that we're going to always have everything we want and have health, wealth, and prosperity and everything all the time. We're not promised that. As much as we would all like that, we're not promised that. But we are promised abundant life in eternity. We are promised eternal life that we can look forward to. We have great joy in Christ because of what he did. Our faith is not in the human physician. And it again, it is wicked to tell people that what he just said. It condemns believers and it causes them to question their faith and to question the truth of his word. It questions who is in control. Satan is not sovereign. He is bound by what Christ did on the cross. He cannot do anything of his own volition. He is a defeated foe, not because of someone thinking they can go to the courts of heaven and speak the word of the Lord and be his government, while completely missing Christ being Lord and God, by the way. God, and the, the Son and the Father are one. The Godhead is one. One God, three persons. And they agree. Christ is God. To say anything else other than that is not true. As something else worth considering when you're talking about the sovereignty of Satan here, and I want you to really consider this, is can you find a passage in, in the book of Job where Job addresses Satan, where he's rebuking Satan, where he's talking about the devil and he's acknowledging the power of the devil, or is he acknowledging the sovereignty of God, the power of God? Is he saying anything like that that leaves us to that leads us to the pattern of these practices today? Because people will use the example of Job for their own teaching in saying, well, you have to watch brother or sister because you can't so you can't so fear. If you start speaking fear with your words, then you're going to allow the enemy to attack you. But then 
There's no talk of Job binding the devil, binding Satan, acknowledging Satan, casting out Satan, and and, uh, rebuking him. There's no mention of that. He is directing everything towards God, or he's lamenting about what has happened to him. But then he goes on in the middle of Job to talk of hope, and he talks about that he knows his Redeemer lives. And and even as you go later on in Job 31, 35, What I found interesting was that he says here, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. So he is addressing God and he's going to get rebuked by God. He's going to get corrected by God because God's going to remind him, who are you? Where were you when basically the earth was formed? And this is the Lord speaking because that's God. (laughs) And if, and again, if we go back to this understanding of that, that the Lord God, Yahweh is Jesus Christ, then even, for example, in Colossians 1, when it talks about that, how the, the earth was formed, it's held together by Christ. He is the creator of the world. He created um, what is in the world. And so, this is part of the Godhead he's speaking to. He's speaking to God. He's speaking to the Almighty and the Lord God, Yahweh, is coming to him at the end when you see in Job 38, 1 through 11, and says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you and you make it known to me. And this is where he begins to ask him all these questions. Uh, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is part of the Godhead. This is not the government of God. These are not prophets or the word of the Lord going forth as the soul of God or seeds and harvest. This has nothing to do with this. Again, Job is about the sovereignty of God and trusting in the sovereignty of God, even when we don't quote, feel God, whether he seems far away and distant or he seems close, God doesn't change. He is sovereign and he, and we can rest in that regardless of what is going on. And because Jesus Christ defeated Satan on the cross, we can join Job in saying, I know my Redeemer lives. I hope that this encouraged you and it challenges you to dig into the word and to continue to be a good Berean. Until next time, be blessed today by this word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, And we continue to grow together in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.